What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Darius Dale is the founder and CEO of 42 Macro, the leading macro risk management advisor. In this conversation, we talk about what's going on in the macro economy, what's happening in the financial markets, how Darius is looking at various metrics, and also what you at home should be thinking about as you invest your capital. I really enjoyed this conversation with Darius, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by BCB Group. With a dedicated focus on institutional payment services, BCB Group provides business banking, cryptocurrency, and foreign exchange market liquidity for many of the world's largest crypto-engaged financial institutions. BCB business accounts allow businesses to load fiat currency and cryptocurrencies for payments, operations, and trading purposes. BCB's clients can trade FX and cryptocurrencies quickly and at scale with market-leading value. BCB's Blink Network is the European crypto industry's first instant settlements network and one of the first real-time payment networks of its kind to allow free real-time transactions across fiat and digital currencies. BCB's vision is to empower the global financial revolution through sustainable and innovative banking. You can find out more by visiting bcbgroup.com slash pomp today. Again, if you want to learn more, go to bcbgroup.com slash pomp today. Today's episode is brought to you by Exodus, the world's leading desktop, mobile, and hardware crypto wallet. They offer beautiful, user-friendly blockchain products that sync across all of your devices, making it easier to send, receive, and exchange over 150 or more crypto assets in one place. And with world-class customer service available to you 24-7, Exodus always has your back. But the fun doesn't stop with staking and trading. They recently launched a new NFT marketplace where you can buy and sell your favorite NFTs on the Solana network. By partnering with the popular NFT platform Magic Eden, they're offering the full Monty on verified collections, with more added every single day. Ready to check it out for yourself? Run, don't walk, over to exodus.com slash pomp for your free download today. Again, if you want the world's leading desktop, mobile, and hardware crypto wallet, go to exodus.com slash pomp today. Today's episode is brought to you by Coinbase Wallet, your key to the world of crypto. Crypto wasn't made to just buy, sell, and hold. With Coinbase Wallet, you can do so much more. Collect more NFTs, earn more with DeFi, and trade more than 4,000 tokens. Whether you're looking to play, stake, spend, or just explore a trending new protocol, Coinbase Wallet is your key to more. Longtime holders already know that wallets are a must-have if you want complete control of your crypto. That's why Coinbase Wallet makes self-custody simple while providing the safety and security of the most trusted name in crypto. Visit coinbase.com wallet to learn more. Again, that's coinbase.com wallet and learn more today. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Darius, what's up, man? Lots going on, man. What's what's top of mind? Gas prices. We're at five bucks a gallon, national average. California, they may be at 10 already. Uh, at least they're trending that way. What is going on with gasoline prices and how do you kind of evaluate how high they could actually go? Well, they're going to go. Uh, this is traditional of energy crises and we're very much in energy crisis. If you look at uh, how we define it at 42 Macro, whenever you have a trailing to your change of uh, trailing to your doubling or more of the crude oil price or natural gas prices or gasoline prices, which we're very clearly observing that in across all three of those markets, uh, we tend to see that as an energy crisis. 
Um, and his, the history of energy crisis is actually not very kind when you think about it from an economic perspective or how they end, because they typically end because these are very inelastic uh, goods. You know, we typically, you know, we'll demand, we'll need them no matter how, what the high price is until you really start to cut off the tails of consumption. These things typically end when we start to sort of um, price people out of the market, unfortunately. So we're talking about low-income families, middle-income families, just not being able to fill up the tanks. So there's been a lot of talk of price gouging. Uh, and then also there is talk of the equivalent of sh- shrinkflation. There was a little controversy on the show earlier today. Uh, they're increasing the amount of ethanol in the gasoline. How do you yeah. think about the dilution of the gasoline, like the quality people are actually getting? And then how do you think about uh, evaluating are these gas stations or, or uh, uh, gasoline providers price gouging versus they're just responding to market dynamics? No, no, they're definitely responding to market dynamics. I and mean, if you look at a chart of <laughs> crude oil prices – Outside of the the grade that Russia ships, I think it's called Euros or whatever. Uh, don't get me, don't quote me on that. But anyway, the Brent prices are you know rocketing to the moon. WTI prices, which is what we produce here in the United States, rocketing to the moon. And oh, by the way, just for folks who don't know, there's all these different grades of gas of, of petroleum of crude oil. Um, and one of the reasons, uh, you know, we, we, the U.S. is is I think either the first or the large, second or first or second largest producer of energy in the world. But yet we're also still I think the first or second largest importer of energy in the world. And that's really just a function of, you know, our grade that we produce is very light. It's very sweet. I don't know who the hell's drinking crude oil to figure that out. But um, it's very light. It's very sweet. And we need to mix it with the much heavier sour grades of crude oil in order to put it in your your car, fill up your gas tank for, for the engines to effectively work on an optimized basis. So when you start to think about uh, gas prices, I immediately jump to the fact that certain portion of people uh, who have long commutes, who usually are lower income, uh, gas makes up a much, much higher percentage of their monthly expenses than, you know, some rich billionaire who uh, it's, you know, nominal amount of what they spend on a month to month basis. Is that a perfect example of like everyone experiences inflation differently? 100%. Everyone experiences inflation differently. They experience financial tightening differently. And so when we talk about things like, you know, inflation pricing, diff- pricing out or slowing consumer demand, it doesn't just hit like all in one month or is this is one monolith. It's a process whereby incrementally, as prices continue to rise, we price and price more families out uh, of, of, from incremental consumption because, again, it takes up a greater share of wallet. So discretionary purchases and even some non-discretionary purchases start to get curtailed at the margins. We're certainly already observing that. In the consumer spending data, when you look at um, you know real PCE growth, it's somewhere we're tracking it around only 1.8 percent on a three-month annualized basis. That's below trend. That's below our you know sort of potential growth rate that we've observed in the economy in the past kind of five or six years. Um, you look at it on a goods, you know, goods consumption is basically zero. We've, we're no longer growing from the perspective of consuming goods because again, energy prices, food prices, et cetera, are really pricing out uh, discretionary purchases and then even services consumption. You know, with a one handle on it at 1.8% three month annualized, that's telling you that very clearly the broader sectors of the economy, which is the consumption consumer, is really starting to slow down and feel the impact of this stuff. And so to answer your question, yes, it impacts different families and different segments of the income cohort differently, but it's not just energy prices rising. Don't forget, we have this entity called the Federal Reserve that's hiking interest rates and draining liquidity from financial markets through quantitative tightening and through its reverse repo facility. And those that, that financial tightening that we're observing in the equity market 
rising equity risk premiums in the credit market, rising credit spreads. That doesn't hit companies all at the same time at the same time either. You're going to have bad companies or companies with you know very risky operating budgets or high fixed costs get hit sooner and harder in uh, other companies. But ultimately, it's going to, going to hit us all when you look at it on an aggregated basis. When you think about this, uh, obviously, there's core CPI and there's a CPI metric and they remove energy and food. Does that change how much weight of importance you put on either one of those metrics uh, when you see gas prices exploding like this? Yeah, so let's start. The core CPI is just the, another name for that is convenient CPI for policymakers, right? <laughs> let's strip out the stuff that goes up the most whenever we have an inflationary episode so we can make, you know, make it pretend like we're actually doing something about inflation or at least doing, uh, it's not as bad as it, it, it otherwise would be. Um, but when you're talking about, core, so you, whenever you're trying to get financial markets right, you need to predict the things that the central bankers are looking at and will respond to, irrespective of the fact that as I, as a human being who fills up my gas tank and, and, and eats food, uh, <laughs> very clearly are experiencing the, uh, the inflation and the shrinkflation that we're all uh, kind of pissed off about. And again, this one, one thing about inflation, when inflation's high, it's the only thing you think about. It's the only thing you talk about. And obviously, we've been talking about inflation for quite some time on this program, and we'll continue to talk about it for some time on the program. But uh, anyway, the point about core inflation, you always want to make sure that you're focused on the things that the central bankers are focused on so that you can stay one to two steps ahead of positioning for the liquidity cycle dynamics that are, that are important for financial markets. And on with respect to core PCE, which is the Fed's preferred inflation metric, which basically strips out everything that, that you and I would consume on a consistent basis. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty, uh, it, you know, we, we don't need to get on the index construction, but, you know, that is running at about just shy of 5% at about 4.9% year over year. Now, obviously, you look around, that's a ridiculous statistic. House prices are up 20% year over year. You know, energy prices are up, you know, let's call it 100%. You know, the food prices are up, you know, 50%. You know, that's obviously a ridiculous metric. But again, it's now starting to move in the right direction. So it's telling you that inflation momentum is really waning. But the key takeaway for investors is that they may, momentum may be waning, but the level is still dangerously high from the Federal Reserve's, uh, from the function, the perspective of the Federal Reserve reaction function. So we've got a chart here. Uh, it's the core good CPI uh, and oh, yes. disinflation. Explain what's yeah. going on here and, and why you think it's so important. Yeah, so this is uh, this is the, these two charts go together. This first one here, uh, it's core goods. So, so tomorrow, for everyone uh, pay, uh, not paying attention, we're going to get the May CPI report coming out of the U.S. economy. And sort of part of the reason I, I put these charts together is there's sort of a developing consensus in the marketplace that inflation has peaked, it's rolled, and we're just kind of now we're just getting closer and closer to the Fed finally, you know, giving up on on policy tightening, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we happen to have a very variant perception. To that view, we, we don't think the Fed's anywhere near giving up policy tightening. And in fact, when you look at the inflation dynamics themselves, which we'll talk about here in this chart, it's not so clear that inflation may, yeah, maybe inflation has peaked on a year-over-year rate of change basis, but it's not so clear that we've, we're going to see a significant disinflation, a deceleration in inflation in the coming months. And the reason I say that is because what if goods disinflation in core CPI in this chart, the, 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 up the top panel just shows the index level of goods prices, core goods prices. So obviously we've had a significant inflation in core goods prices. The middle panel shows the year over year percentage change uh, in that in that top panel. And the bottom panel shows the three month annualized percentage change. So we're still you know very high on a year over year rate of change basis in the middle panel, but we basically ground to zero um, on, a, on a sequential basis. And so it's telling you that that disinflation in core goods CPI, which is causing disinflation in core CPI and core PCE has been the driving factor. But the next chart, 
which is uh, what if dot, dot, dot is overpowered by accelerating core services prices. And to me, this is kind of the one thing that I don't think the average investor is paying attention to, which is the potentiality for the disinflation in core goods to get overwhelmed by the acceleration in, in core services. Same analysis. The top chart just shows the uh, index level of core services. Um, the, the, the middle panel shows the year-over-year rate of change. And the third panel shows the three-month annualized rate of change at around you know, 7.5%. You know, we're building momentum to the upside in core services prices. And oh, by the way, services is a much larger segment of the, of the economy. It's about two-thirds of the economy or two-thirds of consumption. Sorry, 75% of consumption, two-thirds of the overall economy. And so you know, if we continue to see this type of acceleration in services prices, which we should based on house price dynamics and shelter price dynamics, it's very likely that inflation stops improving, i.e. disinflating and decelerating in the summer months. And we might actually get a pickup in inflation, which would cause the Fed to get incrementally more hawkish and markets to go down as a function of that. So off, off of that point, you also have a, a chart here that says people may actually be misunderstanding uh, or misinterpreting the Fed's resolve, which is yeah. a, a, a pretty big point. Explain this. Yeah. So this chart shows uh, the blue line in these charts. So just focus on the upper panel. The blue line shows the what the what, what the market is implying or, or is pricing in in terms of incremental Fed fund rate changes over the next month. This is looking at overnight index swap uh, for contracts. The red line shows what the market is pricing in in terms of Fed fund rate hikes over the next two years. The black line just shows the actual level of the of the uh, one year forward contract. And as we can see, you know, basically since early May, we've seen this this sort of um, you know the market in, pricing in incremental hawkish policy up is hawkish, down is dovish. Incremental hawkish policy kind of peak in early May, and it's function. It's, it really was a function of hey, we got the the slowdown of the observed slowdown in year over year rate of change and headline CPI and year over year rate of change in core PCE. So the market's like, oh, phew, let me take a break, take a breather. Everything's done. The Fed's done. You know, you know, everyone sort of got ahead of themselves and saying this is a Federal Reserve that is going to be very quick in terms of this this policy, this reduction in, in liquidity that it's uh, that it's that it's enacting right now. And to me, I think the market may be underestimating their willingness to stay tight, to stay hawkish, to do incremental rate hikes, to do incremental QT, to be incrementally tight with respect to its reverse repo facility as a function of everything I just said about the, you know, the evolving inflation dynamics. If inflation starts misbehaving, may misbehave tomorrow with the CPI print, may misbehave uh, on the 30th with the core PC print, or it may just misbehave in the months ahead as energy and food prices continue to go higher. If those things, if, the, if inflation misbehaves, we're going to see incrementally hawkish policy priced into Fed fund rate expectations and into market uh, valuations as a function of incrementally hawkish expectations on QT. So you also have a chart that says bear markets are common. Don't freak out, uh, yeah. which I think is like a fantastic title. Uh, yeah. There are business cycles. And when you get yeah. good times, at some point, you're going to get bad times. Uh, talk us through this and give us some historical context here. Yeah. So this is uh, great, great. I'm so glad we brought this up. And so to me, it's like, you know, you guys are used to this in crypto. Like there's bear markets in crypto like every six weeks. <laughs> so, but I think that, you know, kind of the average investor who's, you know, you guys are obviously crypto oriented, but there's a lot of investors, particularly on the equity side, you know, who've been used to, you know, this post-crisis era of low interest rates, perpetual quantitative easing, Fed put no lower than 20% down on the S&P. And the reality is that's very inconsistent with, with economic and market history. This chart, uh, Bear Markets are Common, Don't Freak Out, just shows the 100-year chart of the S&P uh, showing a trailing one-year 
realized volatility in the S and P. And the bottom panel just shows the the drawdowns from the from the from 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 the highs uh, whenever you go into these um, these bear markets. And the reality is, you know, if you look at the far bottom right of the chart, and then you kind of scan your eyes back left at that at that bottom panel, you realize like, man, we've been living in a very anomalous time relative to the last 100 years of history in terms of both not only seeing significant bear markets, the frequency of bear markets, and also the frequency and significance of recessions. You know, we've had a very interventionist Fed throughout basically my entire career. You know, I started in the business in 2009, um, you know, and really since then, the Fed has been perpetually interventionist. Well, now that inflation is at a significantly higher, you know, it's orders of magnitude higher than their target, they are not allowed to be interventionist. And so no matter how bad things get, this summer, this fall, and into into the winter, and maybe even into next year, they're not going to be able to bail you out unless inflation behaves. And what I'm talking about inflation is suggesting that it may not behave. And so we have to get used to the fact that this is what business cycles dictate. This is what human emotion, fear, and greed dictate. And this is ultimately just this is a, it's a natural cyclical process that we shouldn't be afraid of. So really what this is showing is that there used to be way more frequency to the bear markets and much more severity to bear markets. And totally. now all of a sudden uh, we actually are um, in some way fortunate or privileged in that there aren't as many uh, bear markets and they're nowhere near as severe as they used to be. And mm-hmm. your uh, analysis is that the Federal Reserve's willingness to step into the market and manipulate interest rates and conduct quantitative easing, et cetera, uh, has actually uh, allowed for uh, what I think maybe is one of their goals, although it's not a stated goal, of keeping asset prices continuing to go up and to the right. Uh, the problem then becomes, I guess we just get no cleaning out of uh, bad capital allocation. Uh, we get no reallocation of resources from bad mm-hmm. companies to good companies. And it kind of just allows for uh, the plur- uh, proliferation of like zombie companies in some way, right? Yeah, not only, Pop, that was such a brilliant synopsis. It's not just the proliferation of zombie companies. It's also the growth of these gigantic moats around the good companies, right? It's just harder to be have a dynamic economy like we used to have in the 90s when you basically have a Fed that is preventing the business cycle. They're mm-hmm. preventing a drawdown in capital and capital reallocation, which is a natural function of a capitalist society, right? They're basically trying to eradicate that function in society and replace it with you know, perpetual intervention. And they've been able to do that fairly successfully. You know, I'm not saying that the outcome is successful for everybody in the country, but in terms of what their, their, their stated objective was, which is to smooth the business cycle and remove uh, volatility from financial markets, they've done a fantastic job of that relative to you know, 100 years of economic history. The problem is when inflation is really high and 350 plus million Americans are pissed off about inflation, and they're calling their local politician, they're calling the president, they're calling Jay Powell, they're at the Fed meeting, they're, you know, the, the Jay Powell's addressing, you know, everybody uh, directly at the Fed meetings now, you know, it tells you that they, this interventionist Fed that we're all so used to, and, and part of the reason why we got to 4,800 on the S&P or, you know, was it 69,000 in Bitcoin, the interventionist Fed was very much a part of those prices. And now we're not going to have interventionist Fed, in our opinion, for at least a few quarters, if if not potentially longer, if inflation continues to misbehave. Talk a little bit more about the Fed being so willing to intervene, how it creates these moats around the great companies. Obviously, if you look at the S&P 500, there's much more concentration in you know, just a couple of the top companies. Is that related to the Fed's activities? 100%. So it, it, the reason it's related to Fed activities is because if you're a large established company that's already generating cash flows, you have the ability to, to raise debt 
at a significantly lower price than the rest of the world. And so the cost of debt financing and as a function of this, the cost of equity financing for established companies has been lower and lower and lower to structurally all-time low levels, all-time tight credit spreads, you know, all-time low levels of equity risk premium um, you know, in this, in this post-crisis era. And it's allowed companies like Instagram to buy fate to buy, you know, sorry, it's allowed Facebook to buy Instagram. It's allowed basically Google to buy pretty much every company that every supplier that it ever, you know, does business with. Um, you know, there's, you know, you go down the list in terms of the consolidation we've seen in industries. I mean, damn, what business is an Amazon taken over yet? You know what I mean? Like Amazon used to sell books. Now Amazon sells basically everything at the highest level of, you know, <laughs> in the world. And the only reason they were able to do that is because investors were constantly being forced to reach for yield in Amazon debt, in Amazon stock, because there was no real alternative from a, from a, from a you know, safety uh, of asset perspective. You couldn't get money in your bank account. The Federal Reserve, the, the Treasury market didn't have a legitimate real interest rate that was of substance of consequence that would cause you to not speculate in things like Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. So you have companies like Amazon, Uber, Tesla, Netflix, all these companies that basically used your money to grow and burn free cash flow for years in order to gain the market share that they've gained. That process stops when interest rates go up and there's a legitimate, you know, real interest rate in the economy to, to, to park your money into on the short end of the curve. So you've got another chart here. FOMO is even more common. Don't blow yourself up. And it's from 2000 to 2002. I mean, great titles today. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so in the, this, uh, this is from our, our most recent uh, macro scouting report. We put out this presentation every, every, every month. And kind of one of the key uh, discussions I've been having with investors is kind of like the summary of all the, the conversations I'm having with our clients throughout the month. Like, okay, let me hear it. Let me answer all the key questions. And one of the key questions is like, was that the bottom? Was May the bottom? Was May the bottom? Was May 12th the bottom in Bitcoin? Was May 20th the bottom in, in stock market? Um, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think it was the bottom. In fact, the, the, you know, the preponderance of our research says the bottom is significantly lower. Um, and one thing I would just call out with that chart, you know, bringing the back chart back up, you know, when you, we've been looking at 2000 to 2002 as a very important sort of market analog to this current setup. Um, you know, you think about the sort of lack of leverage cycle risk, of credit cycle risk in the economy. You know, if we do get a recession in this particular interval, it'll be very mild. It'll be very, you know, sort of inventory cycle driven, which is very different than a more financialized financial crisis type recession. Um, so it's a very similar setup, a uh, very similar setup from a market overvaluation perspective, <clears throat> very similar setup from the perspective of the amount of household uh, net worth is being allocated to the equity market. So I see a lot of the same corollaries. So I wanted to use this as an analog to say, hey, the equity market got cut in half in, a, in a, you know, basically in a span of, let's call it two and a half, three years um, in this time frame. And throughout that process of getting cut in half, you had seven, eight very significant bear market rallies Throughout that process, you know, several of them were, you know, orders, you know, 15, 20 percent off the local lows. But the reality is in the green arrow in this chart, if you zoom in and that um, the green arrow is the third bear market rally uh, in this process, in this, this you know, minus 50 percent process. And right now we're currently in the third bear market rally for the S&P 500 and, and a lot of other risk assets. And at least, at least looking at this historical analog market was down another, let's call it 40 percent from the highs of that third bear market rally. So the point I wanna make is don't blow yourself up going all in too soon because it's not the bear market that gets you, that blows you up. It's the going all in too soon that blows you up because you wind up losing a significantly larger chunk of your money uh, in the ensuing downturn. 
So when you start to think about uh, not getting blown up, obviously there's this idea that diversification protects wealth, concentration builds it. How do you think about people navigating back and forth between diversification and concentration? Is it a fluid type thing? Is it something where they should always be positioned a certain way from an asset allocation and just that provides, you know, uh, capture of the good times and protection of the bad times? Like, how do you think about investors navigating these types of business cycles? Yeah. So I think you had a great tweet the other day. It was like uh, the person with the lowest uh, time preference wins. Um, and I think concentration, you, you can afford to be concentrated as an investor if you have a very low time preference. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's concentration. It's fine. You don't need the money. So you can suffer the volatility of the drawdowns because you don't need the money. The reality is the vast majority of people, even if they don't need the money, are going to be emotionally affected, you know, you know, just financially affected by changes in, in their overall portfolio. Um, and so the reality is most people don't have as low as a time preference as they, they would like to admit. Um, you know, this is proven behavioral. There's been many of, you know, Nobel Prize winning behavioral studies on this kind of stuff. So uh, take my word for it. Take Danny Kahneman's word for it. Don't take my word for it. I'm not a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, but anyway, so my, my point is, is when you talk about the, the, the scale between diversification and concentration, the more diversified you are, the more likely it is that your portfolio has lower volatility. And, and if you want, you know, most, I think the ideal outcome for everybody would be a low volatility, you know, high sharp, low, high Sorrentino ratio. That means, you know, you're, you're, you're returning excess relative to drawdowns. You want to basically a line that goes up, you know, over time that doesn't change very much and, and goes up a very high amount. That's impossible. That's very hard to do. Obviously, we can do that. We now you and I wouldn't be talking to other people on podcasts. We'd be counting money on a boat. Uh, but <laughs> maybe we, maybe we wind up counting money on a boat. But that's neither here nor there. My, my point is, when you talk about diversification concentration, it's a personal choice. You need to understand your own risk parameters, your own time preference, and if you can suffer, if you're the kind of person that can suffer a 20, 30, 40 percent drawdown of your capital. And that's fine. Go be divert, go be concentrated in whatever you think your best idea is. But if you're like 95% of us and you cannot do that, then you do need to have a little bit more diversification and not just in diversified assets, because a lot of assets are correlated, but you also want to have diversification across time horizons. You, you want to have diversification across themes. Like it's not all just one big, you know, deviate or derivations of the same bet. You know, I see a lot of investor portfolios when we get new clients and we sort of walk through this process. You know, they'll be like, well, I'm diversified because I'm long NVIDIA, Apple, <clears throat> Netflix, and, and Google. And I'm like, those are all the same factor risk, right? It's all the same trait. You know, that then so that's what I mean by you know being aware of the kinds of diversification you're actually making and whether or not you actually are diversified. When you start to think about the Federal Reserve uh, moving forward here, um, it seems like they are going to continue doing exactly what they've been doing which is they are going through the end of this year, they remain committed to increasing interest rates, they remain committed to the quantitative tightening. We're now a little bit into the quantitative tightening. Is there anything that's happening there that would suggest they may change or reverse course or so far exactly what we would expect to happen is happening? <laughs> no, man, we, we, we're just getting started, dude. <laughs> like, like technically speaking, and it's already, we're already like two days into quantitative tightening because it started on Tuesday, there was an auction, I think, of 40 billion treasury securities. And, and normally the Fed would be taking that down, revert, you know, investing its full $15 billion maturity next week into that. Um, but they only did like, you know, five or six billion into that. So we've already basically lost, we've already done like $10 billion worth of quantitative tightening since Tuesday. 
Um, and so, you know, and again, it'll, it won't be like, you know, linearly throughout the month and it won't be linearly throughout any, any particular month. But my point is, we are so early in this process. I mean, you look at, you know, they're going to do 45 billion in QT in the first three months and then ramp that up to 95 billion in, in the, you know, in the ensuing months. And one, 45 billion is as big as a, they've ever done in history. And they're getting started with that in this month here. And they're going to double that in three months. And so when you look at when you look at our math, and this is, you know, I'm not trying to make a headline here, but I think this is very important to take to, to, to write home with to end the show on. When you add up the expected change in, in, in quantitative tightening between now and year end, and then you, you also overlay that with our analysis in terms of the likely change in the reverse repo balance between now and year end, i.e. somewhere around four an additional $400 billion of liquidity being trapped in, on the reverse repo facility, you're talking about over $900 billion of liquidity being drained from global financial markets just because of the Federal Reserve's actions between now and year end. That $900 billion is greater than the entire sum of the prior quantitative tightening program from 2017 to 2019. So that was 21 months, they drained $850 billion. We're going to try to drain $900 billion in seven months. And I, I just don't think that's a, that's a, that's, that's going to be a bumpy ride. And when you think about that, what would be the thing that you think investors should watch for? Like what, what are the, the milestones, the markers, the waypoints on that journey that, uh, that you're like, yeah, this is the stuff I'd be paying attention to uh, aggressively. Yeah. So, uh, so there's a couple things. Uh, so we're, we're at least according to our models. And again, our models could be wrong like anyone's, but at least according to our models, we are, we're projecting a sharper deceleration in growth in the coming months, particularly starting in July, you know, persisting through the back end of the year. So I'd like to see the growth data start to actually confirm that. Um, I'd like to see how interest rates respond to the confluence of a sharper deceleration in growth, yet obviously a significant reduction in liquidity in the bond market, et cetera. I would like to see how that, you know, I don't know the answer to this. I expect bonds to rally, bond yields to go down, um, once the growth starts to really pick up to the downside, but there's no guarantee just given a lot of the sort of liquidity dynamics in the marketplace. And so I want to be, I, I want to observe like how bonds are reacting in that particular moment, because that'll have a pretty significant signal um, as it relates to investor willingness to speculate in things like, you know, uh, tech stocks relative to value stocks or, you know, digital assets relative to real assets, you know, stuff like that. So that, that, that it may start to influence a change in leadership in the market, although I'm not so sure that uh, risk assets will bottom until that that process is, is closer to concluding than closer to the beginning. Yeah. What are the institutions doing that may be different than retail investors right now? Is there anything that uh, retail could be looking at and saying, oh, institutions are doing this, that's surprising or, or different than maybe what retail thinks? Yeah. So the, I would break an institutions into two sort of camps, right? There's the camp of institutions that is a little bit more slow moving, mm -hmm. and those folks are looking around and trying to find that like value and trying to buy dips in, in their favorite names and their favorite long term names. And then there's a sort of faster moving institutions, you know, the sort of hedge fund type community. Um, those folks are, are have largely taken their ball and gone home. They you know they're, they're bracing for impact um, because you know they they I think they see the writing on the wall as it relates to hey we didn't get it we got here because of aggressive monetary easing. Now we're about to have aggressive monetary tightening. And so the, the, your central case, your base case scenario should be an unwind of everything we just saw, right? And I don't think that the average person realizes how, you know, how that mirror works. Uh, but, you know, so institutions are certainly uh, bracing for impact. Um, and, and, and one final thing that institutions do, generally speaking, that I think in retail investors do poorly, um, generally speaking, is, is again, having this sort of 
concentration of views in one singular bet. You know, they think you might have 10 positions on, but there are 10 highly correlated positions. And more importantly, not just correlated in terms of the price movement and volatility, but also correlated in terms of the catalyst you need to get those positions to work. And one thing institutions do that is, I think a, a retail investor should adopt is understanding how to separate your portfolio into different themes, into different core themes. That way you're, you know, you can have you know, something like, hey, we're long China and China's working, but it's separate from our negative view on the NASDAQ and things like that, as opposed to like, I'm just, you know, short the NASDAQ, short China, short Germany, short everything else. And it's all one basically big trade. So I just want to, you know, just from a, from, a, from a risk management standpoint, I think it's very important for everyone to look at what you own, even if it's all crypto, if it's all digital assets, are they tokens? Or are they stores of value? If you're, if you're all in tokens, then you probably got a problem because you're going to be levered to, you know, whatever dynamics are influencing that market at any given time. And so, again, it's just, just understand the kind of bets you're making and how correlated they are and how diversified you may be or may not be. Yeah. When you start thinking about fixed income, obviously pensions, endowments, uh, many of these large institutions, they have immense exposure uh, to the fixed income market, uh, sometimes 70 plus percent, uh, obviously on a real return basis. So that those have been doing so hot. Uh, And it feels like, um, you know, worst year ever. Yeah. If you look at something like CalPERS, you know, towards the end of last year, uh, they started to push further into alternatives. They started to actually add in some leverage into some of their investments. And it feels like uh, the slower moving, more conservative organizations right near the top started to take on more risk, which in hindsight probably was like uh, a pretty obvious sign of, um, you know, good times. Uh, Yeah. What is the ramifications of that stuff? As they push further out on the risk curve, added more alternatives, took on leverage, like what do those institutions do now? Do they try to unwind it or do they basically just plow ahead and say, look, we got to last for 18 months, 24 months, but, you know, we'll get back to good times and and let's not uh, become, you know, very uh, uh, volatile in our strategy changes. No. So this is thing called myopic loss aversion that, that investors uh, struggle with in financial markets is one of the behavioral heuristics of investing. And so the reality is when you make a big asset allocation pivot like that, and don't forget like CalPERS is like the slow moving of the slow moving, like they need to have a a committee meeting to decide whether to have a committee meeting, you know, that's the kind of organization that this is. And so whenever they make a decision like that, they're not reversing course anytime soon. And, you know, so the reality is they're probably going to be the last people to have to sell out of whatever the hell they bought at the highs in January um, of 2022. Um, at some point later down the road in this process, assuming we're right. I mean, we can obviously be very wrong on all this, but I, I, I'm not going to bet. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not smart enough to bet against 900 billion dollars of QT. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm certainly not smart enough to bet against not, at 900 billion dollars of QE. So why would I do it in reverse? Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating to me that you know the the uh, human emotion, all of the lessons of history are playing out here uh, once again. Um, when we look at the Fed. Uh, they obviously have one point in time where a lot of people are pointing to, which was uh, Volcker and uh, high interest rates. Do you think that uh, they are looking at those situations and and aspirationally saying, hey, look, let's go uh, replicate what happened there? Or do you think they more so just look at it you know, as one point in history among many, um, they're aware of it, but but there's less aspirational, uh, uh, you know, interest in like replicating times where, you know, we look at Paul Volcker now and I think a lot of people say, Hey, that was pretty courageous. Like, how do you see history playing into the feds decisions? So great question. So I think we talked about this before, which is 
the Fed is fighting two wars right now. On one hand, they have to get inflation back under control. But on the other hand, they have to regain their credibility on the, on the, uh, associated with them getting the inflation call very wrong last year. And a lot of people are, are really struggling as a function of them getting that call very wrong last year. They should have been tightening in March of 2021. I mean, it's pretty clear that you were going to have an inflation cycle then, um, as if you look at the fiscal policy dynamics. But, but that's neither here nor there. My, my point is when, you, when, when Jay Powell sort of elicits you know, the imagery associated with Paul Volcker, I think what he's trying to do is say, hey, look, I got this thing wrong, but I, I, I look, trust me, I, got, I have an archetype, I have a blueprint of, of unwinding this mistake that I made. And I think it speaks more to the, to the behavioral side of the equation than it does to the, just their mandate of stable prices, right? And so ultimately what I really think it wants to happen, Jay Powell doesn't want to retire as the guy who let the inflation genie out of the bottle, right? He doesn't want to be the Arthur Burns. Arthur Burns was the, the Fed chair prior to Paul Volcker, who was constantly being cajoled by, uh, it was Nixon, it was, it was uh, Jimmy Carter, constantly cajoling him to keep monetary policy very easy throughout the 70s, even though, you know, even though we had very high inflation then, and that was an issue. Um, and so Jay uh, Powell does not want to be Arthur Burns. That's why he keeps listening to this image of Paul Volcker. Yeah. And, and then lastly, I guess, is uh, price controls. Uh, even just this morning, President Biden talking about calling on Congress to crack down on companies raising uh, shipping prices by a thousand percent. We've seen other politicians talking about grocery stores or price gouging, gasoline. Uh, there's price gouging going on. Uh, obviously, in countries like Argentina, you get really high inflation, you get ignore, uh, ignorance of the problem, then you get uh, transitory type you know, uh, labeling, then you get the story of like, it's good for you, and then eventually you get blaming of corporations and price controls. Do you expect that to happen in the United States as well? I mean, I don't expect it to happen because we're going to have gridlock in Congress in an election year. But if it does happen, it's only going to prolong the inflation problem, right? What you're doing with price controls is you're, you're, you're capping the right tail of inflation in the near term by and, and replace and just pushing it out to the further term, because what, what happens when you have price controls is you have a reduction in aggregate supply, you know, whatever industry or whatever product that you put a price control in, you're going to reduce the amount of supply, right? Like if I sell research and the government tells me that my research has to be half off from now, well, guess what? I'm probably only going to work half the amount of time and I'm going to put out half the amount of research. I'm not going to put out the same amount of research if the government tells me I could charge only 50% of the price. And so you think about it from that perspective, um, you, you multiply that across the economy. Price controls have been proven. I mean, even the, the, the wonkiest of the wonky academics at the Fed and, and other, these other intergovernmental organizations, they all understand that price controls is a very, very dangerous thing to deal with because it's sort of, you know, we get short-term relief for guaranteed long-term pain, which I think is really counter to the Fed's uh, inflation mandate. Yeah. Where can we send people to uh, to find you on the internet? This, this is fantastic. I literally could talk to you for hours and hours about this shit. But uh, where, where can uh, we me send too, you? Me too, man. <laughs> no, this is good stuff, man. Absolutely. We'll, we'll have to have an event where we just get drunk and, and rant about uh, politics and economics uh, <laughs> but, uh, next next year in Miami. Uh, um, so uh, uh, 42 Macro. So uh, we produce uh, research for, uh, I'd like to think for everybody. Uh, I think if, if you've learned anything in the last six months, is that macro matters and you can't just be endemic to whatever asset class you're trading. In fact, I got a great question on Twitter from uh, somebody that said, uh, hey, uh, you know, do you, do you put out research like 100, you should put out a, a new report that's just for crypto. And I go, we have clients that do 100, just equities, we have clients that do just fixed income, we have clients that do just currencies, we have clients that do just private equity and venture capital. 
why would I put out a macro product for just crypto? Are, ma- are crypto people in, are immune to Federal Reserve policy changes or significant slowdowns in growth or you know, lockdowns in China? No, we're all part of the same macro cycle together. So what we're doing at 42 Macro is trying to help everyone navigate all these different changes with our data-driven process. So come check us out. If you don't, then come find me on Twitter at 42 Macro Detail. Awesome, man. Listen, thank you so much for, uh, uh, for coming on every Thursday. I learn something every single time and uh, we'll do it again man. next Thursday. Yeah, man. Keep, keep flying the flag, man. You're uh, doing a great service <laughs> for a lot of people, brother. Appreciate you. All right. Sounds good. Talk soon. Cheers, brother. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.